Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Alex Narasa and I'm the Immigration Policy Analyst here at Cato. We're very excited today to have Professor Borjas here to talk about his new book, Immigration Economics. Politically, immigration is a very contentious issue and often makes us lose sight of its economic consequences. We are delighted, therefore, to have Professor Borjas here to discuss his new book on that timely topic, along with another renowned expert on the economics of immigration, Professor Amelie Constant. Now, any serious researcher or layperson interested in the economics of immigration has certainly come across both Professor Borjas's and Professor Constant's work on this topic. It's hard to discuss the economics of immigration for more than three minutes without bringing up either of their work. The format of this book form is going to be pretty simple. Professor Borjas will present his book, followed by Professor Constance's remarks. Hopefully, the two scholars uh, will then go back and forth, developing a dialogue about the ideas. And then we will open it up to the audience for questions and comments, or primarily questions, please. Um, so please allow me to introduce our speakers. Uh, George J. Borjas is the Robert W. Scrivener Professor of Economics and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He was awarded the Institute for the Study of Labor Prize in Labor Economics in 2011. Professor Borjas is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Labor. Professor Borjas is the author of several books, including Immigration Economics, Heaven's Door, Immigration Policy in the American Economy, and the widely used textbook Labor Economics, which is now in its sixth edition. He has published around 150 articles and books and scholarly journals. His professional honors include citations in Who's Who in the World and Who's Who in America. Professor Borjas was elected a fellow of the Econometric Society in 1998 and a fellow of the Society of Labor Economists in 2004. He received his PhD in economics from Columbia University in 1975. Amelie Constant is the program director of migration at the Institute for the Study of Labor in Bonn, Germany, and a visiting professor at the George Washington University and Temple University. She is also the founding co-editor of the Institute for the Study of Labor Journal of Migration. She was also the vice dean of the DIW Berlin Graduate School as, a, as well as a research professor, a senior visiting fellow at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies in Washington, DC, a member of the European Academy of Sciences, and was recently elected president of the Society of Government Economists. She also serves on the board of directors of the American Nonprofit Association for Integrity and Responsible Leadership in Economics and Associated Professions. Professor Constant is a leading expert in the economics of international migration and labor markets with over 50 refereed articles and book chapters. She co-edited the book, The Foundations of Migration Economics, The International Handbook of the Economics of Migration, the book, How Labor Migrants Fare, a volume of the Research and Labor Economics Journal, and a special issue of the Journal of International Manpower. In addition to her vast economic, academic publications, she has also written over 30 policy reports and op-eds on migration issues. Professor Constant has also been internationally recognized for her academic work, ranking among the top 200 young economists worldwide in 2011, and rated in the top 5% of economists according to the REPEC Authors Survey. She received her PhD in labor economics and econometrics from Vanderbilt University in 1998. So without any further ado, Professor George Borjas. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you so much for having me down at Cato to talk about my work. 
the first time I've been to Cato, so it's really quite a pleasure to be here, especially with this new book that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, let me uh, tell you a little bit of what the book is about and uh, what I think it contributes. Uh, as all of you know, roughly 215 million people or so right now live outside the country where they were born. So put it differently, about 3% of the world is composed of, four, of immigrants, basically. And uh, in every single immigrant receiving country, there's a debate over what the impact of immigration is, both socially, economically, culturally, and so on. I'm going to focus on the economic impact, obviously. And uh, there, once one cares about the economic impact, there's actually a number of reasons why, uh, why the study of immigration economics is important. Some of those reasons are policy-related. Every time that you open the paper up, you see something about immigration that raises the policy question. For example, just today's paper, we're having a lot of immigrants come in, younger people coming in, and they're being placed in particular places. And at the same time, in the last few months, there's been a policy shift, not discouraging that type of behavior. So a good question to address would be, have the policy shifts that we've had in the last year or so attributed to sort of the, the influx that's happening now, that rapid in, the rapid increase in the influx. That's a policy-related question, which is interesting and important. But what I want to argue is that there are actually even more important questions, more inherently interesting questions about economics that deal specifically with the economics of immigration. And these questions, such as, we know that not everybody migrates. What determines, what separates the movers from the stayers, for example? We know that immigrants come in and they change the labor market. How would you go about measuring the impact of immigration? What, what, do, what do, they, do the data tell you? What does economics have to say about whether a, a receiving country benefits? And how would you go about measure, measuring the costs and benefits of immigration on net? So all these questions are really eco economically interesting questions that really have, that basically depend on applying the tools of economic theory and the tools of econometrics to try to address these various issues. So the, what the book is really about is the following question. What does economics have to say about immigration? And what do we have to assume to get it to say what it says or what we think it says? And one of the important contributions of the book, I believe, is to sort of deconstruct the various models to sort of show you what it is that you need to assume and what role each assumption plays in the, in the eventual conclusion and how robust those results are to the various changes in assumptions that one can possibly make. So I'm going to give you a few examples in the brief talk today as to what some of the topics that the book addresses, the assumptions that are made, the conclusions that are reached, and sort of try to tell you a little bit about how believable the whole thing happens to be once you put it in a context. And the way I want to start is by basically discussing the skills of immigrants. Every economic discussion of immigration has to hinges really on how the skills of immigrants compare to the skills of natives in the receiving country. It is a comparison of those two skill distributions that determines the net economic impact. Immigration in the US today, for example, has a particular impact. It would, have a it would have a very different impact if most of the immigrants were very skilled, and it would have a very different impact still if almost all of the immigrants were highly unskilled. 
So the question of how immigrants compare, how the skills of immigrants compare to the skills of natives is really a fundamental question that is addressed practically in every single receiving country because that determines the eventual impact. And uh, one of the things that you start to notice once you study immigration and trying to determine how and trying to measure how the skills of immigrants are, are determined is that not everybody migrates. The fact of the matter is that even when there are no policy restrictions prohibiting migration, not everybody migrates. A great example of this, and let me actually move to the bullet point, a great example of this is Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, since about 100 years ago, has no policy restrictions prohibiting the movement of Puerto Ricans to the US mainland. Puerto Ricans are US citizens by birth. Uh, per capita income in, in Puerto Rico is actually much lower than per capita income in the United States, even after 100 year of years of free trade and a lot of labor flows. And the question is, why doesn't everybody leave? Given that, uh, just to give an example, right now in Puerto Rico, you can, if you were a manufacturing worker, you can pretty much increase your annual earnings by about $10,000 moving to the US. And that's after controlling for price of living differentials or cost of living differentials. So just think about that. A person who chooses not to move to the US is leaving <coughs> $10,000 on the table every year. That means basically that Puerto Rican is more or less, by moving, could capture a $200,000 gain over the lifetime. The only way you can justify within an economic model that, put, that these Puerto Ricans are not moving is to sort of conclude that the cost of moving must be at least $200,000. There's a huge literature on the, on the cost of moving in economics, and what one finds over and over again is that the cost of moving are remarkably high. And that's true whether you do it across countries, whether you do it across states in the US, whether you do it across industries in the US. People, there's some inertia in most people that prevents them from moving. And, and economists would call that mobility cost, basically. So one important result in economics is that the cost of moving for the typical person tend to be very high. And that is what partly prevents most people from moving. But on top of that, not everybody wants to move, even if the costs were really low. And the reason is that different people gain differentially by living in different places. Again, an example will, will help out. Think of a country like Sweden. In Sweden, uh, wage inequality, which is a topic in the press very much these days, is very, very low. The highly skilled Swede doesn't really earn much more than the low-skilled Swede, especially as compared to the US. In the US, wage inequality is much greater. Now just think, suppose, suppose you're a Swede for a minute, and think of yourself as a Swede at each end of the income distribution in Sweden. Who really wants to move out of Sweden? The people who are being heavily taxed and not allowed to earn their full potential, or the people who are being heavily subsidized and therefore will do much worse by moving out of Sweden? Clearly, when you look at a country like Sweden and the US, the, the, the fact that the rate of return to skills in Sweden is so low compared to the US implies that the highly skilled Swede really want to flow to the country where the rate of return to skills is much higher, namely the US. On the other hand, take a lot of countries in the developing world. They have a lot of income inequality. The rate of return to skills in the developing world is really quite high sometimes. Who wants to move out? Well, again, in terms of pure economics, if people move for the reason of trying to maximize earnings, the people who want to leave are the people who are, are, 
who are being penalized for their lack of skills, basically. And you're going to get a different kind of selection from countries in, that have very low rates, that, that have very high rates of return to skills. And that is one lesson from economics. Differences in prices of skills determine where people choose to live. When a country has a very high return to skills compared to other countries, that country will attract highly skilled workers. When a country doesn't, meaning that it subsidizes low-skilled labor, that country will attract low-skilled workers. In the US, in fact, this is what we tend to see. And this is a graph that basically shows you that kind of result. In this graph, what I'm trying to show you is the entry wage of immigrants by country of origin as a function of the Gini coefficient. The Gini coefficient happens to be a measure of inequality. The higher the Gini, the higher the inequality is, the greater the return to skills. And as you can see, in countries that have very low rates of return to skills, like in the left side of the, of the graph, countries like Japan or Sweden or Denmark, the people who come to the US do quite well. In countries that have very low, I'm sorry, that have very high rates of return to skills, uh, like countries like Haiti, for example, people who come to the US don't do so well. And that's true even after you control for other, other factors that could determine how these different, how immigrants from these different countries do. Rates of return to skills determine the sorting of immigrants across the world. Economic theory does not predict that immigrants would always be the group composed of the best and the brightest. In some cases they will be, in some cases they won't be. And it all depends on where the payoff to skills is. Skilled immigrants will go to those countries where the skills are being, uh, are most beneficial, most beneficially rewarding the labor market. Right now, we have a big competitive, a big competition across receiving countries for skilled immigrants. Well, this kind of result teaches us a lot as to where people really want to go. European countries and America and the US are competing for highly skilled immigrants. The fact that the US tends to have a higher rate of return to skills than those countries gives us a competitive edge in the marketplace for skilled immigrants. Now, this determines a selection. This basically, the selection tells us the skills of immigrants prior to arrival. The day they arrive, immigrants come in and they begin to change, or what an economist would call they begin to assimilate in an economic sense. They learn English, they move to different, country, different counties or different states where there are better jobs, for example. Uh, they change occupations. All these human capital investments are part of what it takes to assimilate economically. And a lot of economists, that's actually, in fact, the very first paper in the modern literature in economics on immigration, going back to 1978, is precisely in this question. What does the assimilation process look like? And what I want to show you is some patterns regarding this. And this table shows you the wage gap at the time of entry between immigrants and natives. And then you track them across censuses 10 years later and find out what the wage gap is 10 years after that. And as you can see, if you happen to arrive in the late 60s, you could pretty much clearly there's a negative wage gap at the beginning. Immigrants don't know the language often. Their education, for example, is not quite transferable. So they don't do quite as well at the beginning. But you can see that over time, or even over a 10-year period, they basically could, in, could cut that gap by about 11%, you know, something like 10 to, 10 to 12%. That's also true for the 1970s cohort. They start out lower 
And that was actually a big debate over that back in the 1980s and 1990s as to what was happening to the entry wage of immigrants. But again, if you look at the overall path over the first 10 years, immigrants tend to assimilate, their earnings tend to narrow, or the earnings gap tends to narrow by 10, 12 percentage points over a decade. However, something has happened recently, and that is no longer true. So let me put the last two data points here. In the 1980s, you can see that the, the gap, the narrowing of the gap is much less than it used to be. And by the for the immigrant to arrive in the late 1990s, the, there's no narrowing of the gap. They earn 27% more, more or less the day they enter the country. They earn about the same amount 10 years later. So an important finding in recent empirical work is that there's been a slowdown in economic assimilation. Now, this is a brand new finding. It's only a couple of years old, so there's going to be a large literature over the next 10, 15 years trying to determine the factors behind this and whether it's really true or not. But it doesn't take too much thinking to realize that if this, if this slowdown is, in fact, uh, true and statistically correct, then it has all kinds of implications for the future well-being of immigrants, the future well-being of the immigrant children, and economic performance of a large group of people in the US economy. I tried very hard to try to understand why it was that you tend to see this slowdown in assimilation. As far as I can tell, it, it, it's nothing to do with the economy, by the way. It's nothing to do with the current recession. It's nothing to do with the fact that you get different countries of origin now than you used to get. Uh, it seems to be related to one factor. And the fact that it seems to be related to is that there's a huge dispersion in immigrant paths, assimilation paths, across countries of origin. And the slowdown happened to occur in those groups that are largest in size in the US. So you think of the immigrant groups that are largest in size in the US, and those are the groups where you see this pattern. Uh, you could tell a very simple story as to why that can happen. And for example, the story would go something like this. The continuation of immigration in large scale has created many very vibrant, very uh, economically vibrant ethnic enclaves in the US. An immigrant can now join those enclaves with little penalty. And there's really very little need to, to learn the skills that are rewarded outside the enclave in order to do better. You can actually do quite well. You can do as well as you, can, as you want within the enclaves. So there's no need to learn English, for example. Or there might be no need to move to a different town looking for a better job. And it turns out there's a very strong correlation between how fast immigrants assimilate and the speed of assimilation of that group. I'm sorry, and, and, uh, and the size of the, or, of the national origin group. National origin groups tend to assimilate slower. And that's something, that's actually food for thought for the next 10 to 20 years, since even if we were to stop immigration today, the population is already here, and this will continue for quite a long time, this process. Let me move on to a question that has dominated the debate over many, many years now, and that is, what happens to, immigrant, to, the, to the US workforce, to natives in the US, in the US workforce, when immigrants arrive in the country? And as all of you know, there's been a big debate as to what happens to native wages. Uh, let me show you a simple graph. 
because I'm going to talk a little bit about this in detail in the next two slides, but let me show you what the data tell you. So as, before we get into any economics, let's just look at the real data and say, what does the data tell us about how native groups do when they are encountered with large supply shocks of immigrants? And this is the data. So in each data point in that graph is basically a skill group. For example, natives who are 30 years old and are high school graduates. Another data point would be natives who are 40 years old and are college graduates. And what this graph does is relate to you the decadal change in the native wage for that group to how many more immigrants came into that group. So this is basically telling you what is happening to, to an evolution of wages in a particular school group for natives as a function of how many more immigrants are entering that group. And what you can see in the graph is that it's a negative, it's a negative slope. It's a negative trend. The groups that had the largest influx of immigrants in any given decade, the school groups that had the largest influx of immigrants in any given decade, are the school groups where the wage grew slowest. Okay? And that is, that's a fact. Several people, many, in fact, not several people, there are many studies basically documenting that at the aggregate level in the U.S. economy, this is what is going on. The disagreement occurs over what does this mean. And in terms of data, this, there's a clear negative correlation. The more the immigrants in any given decade between the 60s and now, the more immigrants enter the skill group, the, the lower the wage growth in that skill group over that decade. A simple way of interpreting this is sort of like a demand curve in economics, more or less. You know, when you have supply shifts, the wage goes down. When the supply of, when the supply of oil goes up, the price of oil goes down. When OPEC cuts the supply of oil back, the price of oil goes up. Immigrants increase the supply of workers, the price of labor goes down. Immigrants don't enter a particular group, the price of labor goes up. Same process. Uh, the problem with this graph is that it's really missing a lot of what's really going on. Because it's basically ignoring the fact that when low-skilled immigrants come in, many high-skilled workers may well be better off, right? You can now concentrate on doing the things that high-skilled workers are better doing, writing your code, for example, and leave the low-skilled immigrants to conduct all the labor that you would have done otherwise, which would have been an inefficient use of your time. So there are complementarities across skill groups that this graph ignores. And therein lies both the opportunity and a problem. Because to bring in these complementarities, you have to bring in economic theory. And you have to bring in equations. So this is just a pure graph of data. <laughs> now you want to take account of all these cross effects, and you need a model. And the model, unfortunately, uh, let me see if I can get to the next slide. There we go. The model, unfortunately, uh, is difficult. To, it, 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 it's a set of equations that you're going to assume to begin with. And let me tell you why you need to make that assumption. In the graph that you had before, there were 40 skill groups, actually. There were five education groups, uh, high school dropouts, high school graduates, some college, college graduates, post-college, and eight age groups, 25, 29, 30, 34, 35, 39, and so on, right? So you have 40 skill groups. Now, imagine an Excel worksheet, where you have, or a matrix, 
where you have 40 skill groups. There will be 40 entries, possible groups entering, affecting the wage of 40 different groups, including their own, right? So a 40 by 40 matrix, a 40 by 40 Excel spreadsheet. There are 1,600 cross effects that you have to bother estimating. So the graph before is very nice because it's very descriptive and it sort of shows you what's going on. If you want to take account of these complementarities, you got to worry about 1,600 cross effects. Well, it's not going to happen <laughs> because it's impossible to do that. So what you need to do at this point is create a little model. And the little model is the intent of the model is to simplify that 1,600 element Excel spreadsheet into a fewer set of numbers. For better or worse, the model that has been chosen in the literature reduces 1,600 numbers to three or four. Uh, right there, that should be a big red flag <laughs> telling you that anything that people do with these models should be viewed with more than the proverbial grain of salt. But nevertheless, people go ahead, including myself, write these beautifully elegant papers, a lot of mathematics, where the whole purpose is to condense a 40 by 40 matrix into something that requires only knowing three or four numbers. If you do that, you can actually get a table like this, which many of you <laughs> who follow the debate have seen before. And it's a table describing using the three or four numbers you're able to estimate, you're now gonna, you're gonna, you're now gonna work backwards and fill in every entry into that 1600 element matrix. That's what this involves, okay? Uh, now, this doesn't show any of that, and people who report this data, including myself, don't report all 1600 numbers, but this is basically what it involves. And uh, let, me, let me tell you, let me, let me concentrate on the, on the very last number first. Many of you who follow the debate will be aware of the fact that economics, economists predict that in the long run, immigration has no impact on the wage. That's 0.0, okay? Now, it's actually quite odd to notice that it's not 0.01 or 0.02 or minus 0.3. It's actually 0.0. Just imagine the process of looking at data. What is the chance of coming up with 0.0? The chance is zero. <laughs> Therefore, this is not a real number. This is actually a mathematically built-in assumption with something having to do with what we call constant return to scale. That if you were to double inputs, you double output. The way we condense a 1600 element matrix into three or four numbers is by making that technical assumption, which builds in the fact that in the long run, immigrants have no impact. So the 0, 0.0 is a completely made up number having nothing to do with the data and having everything to do with a mathematical assumption. The same thing is true, believe it or not, for the minus 3.2%. It's, it's hard to explain, but it's also a mathematically determined number because of the way the model works. What the model is really helpful for doing is not to look at the absolute level, but to look at relative levels. That is much less sensitive to assumptions. So for example, in this table, in the short run, high school dropouts because of the immigrants who came in in the last 20 years earned 6% less. College graduates earned 3% less. This model basically tells you that because of immigration, the, the low skill wage at the very bottom grew by 3% less than the high skill wage at the, for college graduates. There's a 3% widening of the wage gap 
between skilled and unskilled. And that's the kind of, that's the way to interpret these tables. And that actually makes them, that, that's actually something that's not so dependent on assumptions. The actual number itself means nothing. For example, a lot of people, in fact, people do this all the time. Depending on which side of the coin you're on and which numbers you want to spin, you'll either pick column one or column two. Because in column one, the numbers are bigger, right? They get more negative. In column two, they're smaller. They're closer to zero. That's all mathematical. There's no such thing as a sure round along in, 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 in the data. The data is the graph I showed you earlier. All these numbers come from that graph. So a very important lesson that I, I, I really try to emphasize very heavily in the book is that a lot of what we think we know about the labor market impact is really driven by assumptions. And one has to be very, very careful about how you interpret all this once you move beyond the, the, the data and building these mathematical models. Now, hopefully, over the next 10, 20 years, people will construct better models that will take that 1,600-element matrix and not bring it down to three or four, maybe 10 or 20. And that may be a little better description of reality. But don't forget, in every economic model that we see, whether in immigration or not, there are hidden equations. Those hidden equations are usually not made public to, in the media, for example. But nevertheless, those hidden equations drive a lot of what is going on. Okay? Now, why do we care about this? We care about this for a very special reason. And that is the fact that economic theory predicts, there we go, uh, that the economic benefits from immigration to the receiving country depend very strictly on the wage effect of immigration. If you take an economics at all in, in college, you'll remember all these little triangles and rectangles that you used to draw, and that's where all this comes from. So every study that estimates the benefits from immigration, again, is based on a model. The numbers I'm going to provide for you are based on the textbook model that if you've taken economics, you know, you know and love very well, supply and demand. You shift the curve, you get triangles, you get rectangles, you put numbers in them, you try to estimate it, and one important result from those models is that the bigger the wage drop suffered by natives, the bigger the gain to natives overall. And that's actually very similar as the argument for free trade. When you have free trade, for example, in automobiles, it may be true that Detroit workers lose a lot, but the rest of the economy is gained, all the other consumers gain. And it's that gain that, that offsets and over, outweighs the loss that creates the economic rationale for free trade. Same thing is true with immigration. Immigrants come in, the wage of competing workers goes down, but everybody else, namely those people who use immigrants as labor, are going to benefit a lot. And those benefits will exceed the losses. By how much do they exceed the losses? They exceed them by around $35 billion per year. So the kind of immigration we have today in the US increases the income of natives by about $35 billion per year, okay? Now, that seems, a, to me, it's a very big number. I wish I had that kind of money. Uh, but on the other hand, in the, US, in the context of the US economy, which is a $15 trillion economy, $35 billion is really just change. It's not that big a deal in the context of the overall economy. This is a number you actually see quite often when people talk about the benefits for immigration, sort of a gain between 30 and whatever number of billions of dollars. Let me tell you two things about this number. 
First of all, this is all from a model, okay? And if you believe this model, you gotta believe this number, and you gotta believe other numbers that come with it. And what I wanna do now is provide other numbers that come with it. Because the other numbers that come with it, sometimes are emphasized, sometimes are not. But they're all part of the same simulation of the model. The number that, that gets pressed happens to be this one in some circles, but there are other numbers that are just as valid within the context of this model. For example, how much, let me do two of them. How much do native workers lose? Well, if you believe this model, they lose $400 billion. Who gets that? Well, the capitalists, the employers get that. So what immigration basically does is create a redistribution of wealth from labor to people who use immigrants. And I mean employers in a very broad sense. An employer could be somebody who owns a farm in California, as well as the person that used to live next door to me in California when I lived there, who hired two undocumented immigrants to take care of her children and to do housework. So by employer, it really means much broader than just a firm, okay? And uh, what you can see is that the $35 billion net gain is disguising a huge redistribution of wealth. So if you want to argue there's a net gain of $35 billion, you, can, you also have to accept the fact that there's a huge redistribution of wealth. One other thing about this model that's important is that, well, let me actually delay that for a minute. Let me give you two more numbers. Uh, there. You might say, how could it be that immigrants increase the workforce by 15% and natives only gain 35 billion? I mean, only GDP increases by that much? Well, that's the native increase. That's the increase that goes to natives, I'm sorry the increase that goes to natives. Obviously, GDP goes up by much more. Immigrants produce stuff, and they go, GDP goes up by 1.6 trillion. And again, if you believe these model, these numbers, if you believe the model that led to 35 billion, all these numbers are part of the computer output. Some people pick a particular line of the output, but this is all part of the computer output. The total increase in GDP is 1.6 trillion, but most of that goes back to immigrants. Immigrants don't work for free. You have to pay them to do what they do. And again, if you look at the difference between the 16, the 1610, and the 1575, that's a 35 billion. That's what we get to keep. And again, what I want to stress is, this is all part of the same model. One important thing, which is the last bullet point there. It is very hard. In fact, it's almost impossible to cook up a textbook model in economics that you were familiar with, supply and demand, and to generate a huge net gain. That's an important lesson from economics. It is very difficult for the net gain to be very large with the kind of immigration that we have today, which is what's actually motivated many people to move beyond this model and to try to look for something else that could be creating gains. And the something else that could be creating gains are what we call human capital externalities or human capital spillovers. Suppose <coughs> all of a sudden Albert Einstein came into this room and the question becomes, what happens to the rest of us? Well, he knows far more than anybody in this room and probably all of us combined. Any question we've ever had, we can go and ask and solve problems left and right. That's a human capital spillover. His presence increases our productivity. And that's the kind of thing that people have been looking for 
in the context of high school immigration for the last 10 years. When high school immigrants come in, do they increase the productivity of everybody else around them? That's an argument you see very often made in the case of the H-1B program. They come in, they increase the productivity of people around them, they increase innovation, patenting, and so on and so forth, right? There's now, there's actually by now a very large literature in economics on this. Two good examples of the, of the, of the literature of what happened when Nazi Germany dismissed all these Jewish scientists from universities. A remarkable set of papers have been written on this now. And another good example is what happened in the US when world-class Soviet mathematicians came over after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992. Did mathematics in the US flourish? Because after all, mathematicians in the US and the Soviet Union have been separated for 70 years. New theorems were, came in. Ideas came in. What happened to our productivity? One net result you get from all these papers is that yes, human capital spillovers exist. There's no doubt about the fact that if you put smart people around, it, some spillover will come out of that. But these spillovers don't travel very far they tend to be concentrated on the people who work directly with the immigrants. So if you happen to be a lucky guy working at a university that hired one of these world-class Soviet scientists, you locked out. Because you and he or she could start co-authoring, and all the things you've learned would make you so much more productive. But once you, be, once you, be go, once you go beyond the collaboration network, and say, go to the geography like the MSA, or the state, or the field, those, those spillover effects vanish very, very quickly. Now, we don't quite know what this result yet means in terms of the overall impact of high school immigration. This is just beginning. But it is certainly true that spillovers exist. But I believe it is also just as true that these spillovers don't affect everybody. They may, it depends on economic distance, if you want to think of it that way. The closer the economic distance between the immigrant and the recipient, the more likely you'll benefit. The further it is, the less likely you'll benefit. Now, this is a model that looks at the gains from migration to the US. Let me now do another model that looks at the gains from migration to the world. And a little quote from John Lennon. Mm -hmm. I'm a big Beatles fan, uh, but I have to tell you, he's completely wrong in this. Uh, and the reason he's wrong in this is because the line that follows that line in Imagine, Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. It's actually very difficult to do that. <laughs> it's not a simple matter. You look at my book, it involves integrals, derivatives, and a hundred equations. Okay, so it's not a simple, a, a simple thing to do. Uh, and I suspect, given that I've read many biographies of John Lennon, I suspect he didn't know any calculus when he was writing all this. Uh, so uh, imagine there's no countries. Uh, a lot of people believe that if there were no countries, there were open borders. Right now, we have a world in which the developed countries, mainly the US, Japan, I'm sorry, the North America, Japan, Europe, right, have about 1 billion people. The less developed countries have about 6 billion people. And there's a huge wage gap between the two, the two regions. And a lot of people believe that if one were to take a four person, from the developing countries and put them in the US or in Western Europe, 
his productivity would double, triple, quadruple, quintuple. You know, the wage gap is that large. And that movement would create all kinds of gains to world income. World poverty could be raised at one, with one stroke of the pen. Let's remove all borders, okay? So what I want to do is construct a model. Like, it's actually the same model as before for the gains, the same exact model. All this is very consistent use of sort of textbook economic theory. And again, large literature on this that basically finds the same things. Uh, let me put the first slide, the first little point. In every study that's looked at this, and my friends at Cato will love this number because I, I see people here talking about open borders. Uh, there is going to be a huge gain in world GDP if there were open borders and people move from one place to the other until wages were equalized. Now, in this little number I have there, I'm assuming the wage ratio between the developing world and the developed world is four. You can assume it to be two, three, four, five, six, whatever you want. In the book, I actually do the simulation all kinds of ways. The, the, the numbers are going to change, but the point I'm going to make doesn't really change all that much. So, by the way, world GDP right now is 70 trillion. So that means that we could basically increase world GDP by more than 50% by letting people go freely where they want to go, which means high wage places. Now, again, this is a model. And when you run this kind of model, you get a lot of numbers. This is a number that people often stress. What I want to do, however, is look at the other lines of the output and provide to you all the other numbers that come out of this little numerical exercise. And one important number that you might want to consider is, well, you know, that's a lot of money that's going to be, world GDP is actually going to increase dramatically, right? How many people have to move to do that? In other words, how many people have to move from the less developed countries to the developed countries in order to equalize wages across the world, which is what leads to this gain? Well, uh, I hate to tell you this, it's 5.6 billion people. Okay? Now, don't forget that the developing world now has 6 billion people. That means that basically you have to empty out that part of the world. So there'll be, there's going to be a migration of 5.6 billion people. Now, believe it or not, the very first study done in this goes back to the 1980s by Hamilton and Wally. And uh, their whole analysis focused on the first number. They don't even mention the second number. And what I want to do is sort of mention all these numbers, because then you can take the whole thing as a package. And if you buy one number, you have to buy all of them, because it's part of the same model. Okay? So basically, a lot of people have to move. Uh, another number that's important is what's the wage effect? Don't forget the whole point of this is that the wage in the developing country in the developing countries is much lower than the wage in the developed countries. As you move more people here, things will tend to be equalized. That means that the wage in the developed countries must fall. There's just no way around the fact that to get the $40 trillion gain, the wage in the developed countries must fall. By how much? Almost 40%. And again, no pain, no gain. Developed country, developed, developed country workers will lose 40% of their earnings, but 5.6 billion people are going to gain an awful lot. And that's not an economic question, which is better, which is worse, right? That's really more of a value question. But again, it's important to point out what the facts are. Yeah. One more thing I want to point out, two more points, two more little factoids here, is the following. Uh, it is very hard to move 5.6 billion people. 
it's going to cost some money. Uh, and the question is, how much will it cost? And will those costs be, of, you know, be small enough that we don't worry about the $40 trillion? And in fact, let me actually make the argument even better. This is a $40 trillion gain every year from the day that the borders are removed. This is $40 trillion this year, $40 trillion next year, until infinity, right? The present value of that, it's $800 trillion. That's one quadrillion. That's that money, even in DC terms, it's actually real money, okay? Uh, you know, almost one quadrillion dollars, 800 trillion is the gain from removing borders uh, in present value terms. Uh, but don't forget, to move 5.6 billion people, it costs, you know, you just don't move people around like that. You, you have to incur some cost to move, one, to move a person from one place to the other. So what I want to ask is, given that the gain is 800 trillion, but you have to move 5.6 billion people, at what point will the cost sort of offset the gains? You know, will it be a small number or a big number? Well, the number happens to be 143,000, uh, which seems like a lot, right? Except that I pointed out to you at the beginning of the lecture that every study that looks at the cost of migration, it's like $200,000. So the actual numbers that we have now for costs are sufficiently high to suggest that this gain won't be there if people actually have to pay for the cost of moving. So now, again, you have to take all this with a grain of salt, much bigger than the usual one. <laughs> but the point is that these numbers are often taken very seriously. And, all, and even though the first number is the one that's always emphasized, that first number comes from a model that implies many other things. And these implications are just as valid as the first number if one believes in the model. One last thing about the model that's very important is, you know, what's going to happen to Europe and the US and Japan when 5.6 billion people arrive? Right now, we have a set of institutions and economic rules and cultural norms, or whatever you want to call this, that allow the developed world to be more efficient at using labor than the, less, than the developing countries. Will that set of things that lead to a higher productivity remain constant, even when you move in 5.6 billion people? In fact, let me make it even better for uh, the people who tend to argue this kind of model. Suppose we do a modest kind of relaxation of rules, of borders, only 10%. So 10% of 5.6 billion people is half a million. Half, sorry, half a billion, right? Five, 560 million. Half, 560 million movers is still way more, almost three times as many as what we have now. And the question is, if we were to triple migration today with a political, cultural, economic infrastructure that gives the developed world its edge remain the same? Maybe, maybe not. But those are the kinds of questions that this kind of analysis requires you to answer before one goes ahead and conclude that open borders will save the world and remove all poverty at once. It's not so clear. Uh, let me now conclude by getting to the policy issue of all this. Now, the policy is not discussed in the book, because what I wanted to do in the book was really to show you the kinds of exercises that I've just gone over to sort, of, to sort of illustrate where all these numbers come from that inform the debate. So what I want to do is ask a very simple question. 
What does immigration economics imply about U.S. immigration policy? What do all these results, what does economics, what does, what does everything we've learned about economics teach us about what U.S. immigration policy should be? And, you know, you've all been very nice. You took an hour off your lunch and came over to hear this. And I hate to disappoint you, but I might as well disappoint you now. And, oh, oh, I disappoint you greatly because the, the thing that was supposed to show up didn't show up. Uh, okay, so let me go back to the last slide. Let me see if it shows up. Hold on a second, okay? There was, there was a punchline in here that unfortunately I screwed up. Okay, so let me, for some reason that thing is not showing up and again happened. Uh, let me just tell you verbally what it was. Sorry about that. Uh, what does immigration policy, what, does the, what do the facts imply with immigration policy? Had this slide worked properly, you would have seen a big red sign there that says nothing at all. <laughs> and that's actually a fact. Uh, all these lessons that economics teaches you don't really imply a single thing about what, the, about what kind of policy the U.S. should pursue. And the reason is that the kind of policy the U.S. should pursue depends not just on the facts, but also depends on the kind of country we want to be. What kind of immigration, what do we want immigration policy to accomplish? What is the objective function of immigration policy? What do we want it to accomplish? Let me illustrate what I mean by, by an example, okay? Suppose I care very dearly about the well-being of low-skilled workers, okay? And I look at my immigration economics book, and I see that migration of low-skilled workers tends to uh, tends to lower the wage of low-skilled workers here already. And I really care about the well-being of American low-skilled workers. I see a lot of immigrants coming in, competing with them. I see disadvantaged uh, minorities being worse off as a result of immigration. And I say to myself, that's not a good thing. Maybe we should change immigration policy to minimize the entry or to prevent the entry of low-skilled workers because they're doing harm to low-skilled workers already here, people I dearly care about. That's one hat I could wear. Let me put on a different hat. Suppose the hat I put on now is one of a great humanitarian who cares about poor people from all over the world. Uh, immigration policy in the U.S. can be seen as basically the largest anti-poverty program the universe has ever known. We give the chance to millions and millions of low-skilled workers from all over the world to live the American dream. We have to pay a price for that. We have to pay the price that some of our own low-skilled workers are going to be a little worse off. But given the hat I'm wearing now, I am more than willing to pay that price because I'm improving the well-being of millions of others who would have no opportunity whatsoever if we left them behind where they, where they were born. The facts don't matter. All that matters to determine immigration policy in this case is which group, which hat are you wearing? Whose well-being do you care most about? Is the well-being you care most about the low-skilled worker, the disadvantaged low-skilled American who's here now, who's being hurt by additional competition? Or is the people, or the people you're caring about 
the people from all over the world were even worse off in many cases and who have an incredible opportunity to, to live the American dream by giving them the chance to come here. So the facts are meaningless in terms of determining this. It's all a matter of values. If, you, if your set of values is such that the people you care about happen to be those who are here already, who are low-skilled, that will imply one kind of immigration policy. If your set of values is a the very humanitarian, globalist kind of perspective that says, I care about poverty all over the world and I want to give some people abroad the chance to improve that, then the fact that immigration lowers low-skill wages here doesn't really matter. It's a price you're willing to pay. A lot of people, you know, I've worked on immigration for many years, and a lot of people ask me, you know, what should we do? Well, my friends ask me this every time they see me, what should we do? There'd be something in the paper like this morning, what should we do? I, I'll give you my stock answer that I give all my friends, okay? When you, next time you think about how immigration policy in the U.S. Uh, should go, don't forget that we have all these facts from, from economics that tells you the costs and benefits of pursuing different paths. And that's what, this is, that's what economics is really good for. It can tell you the costs and benefits of pursuing different paths. Economics is not really good at telling you which path to pursue. To answer which path to pursue, you have to ask yourself a different question. And the question you have to ask yourself is, who am I rooting for? You answer that question, and you know precisely the path you should follow. Thank you. Yes, hi, hello. Um, so um, I guess um, I'm, I'm sorry your last slide didn't show, but that, uh, that kind of I can use it to my benefit to justify not having PowerPoint presentation <laughs> and use uh, <laughs> low-tech uh, media. Um, I am really deeply honored and very appreciative to have uh, been given this opportunity to discuss this excellent book. Uh, by a great scholar and in front of such a wonderful audience here at Cato. This book is sizzling, is hot off the press. Uh, it's red, um, which is my favorite color, um, uh, like fire. And uh, it goes with a subject because um, whoever touches migration always, you know, feels the heat. Um, just uh, looking at the book, just at the, the jacket of the book uh, sparks interest already. This is a wonderful book. It's very well researched. It's very well argued. Uh, it's thorough. It's factual. It provides us with analytic building blocks and allows us to think. It's intriguing. It's vivid. It's insightful. It's very easy to read although it has a lot of equations. You said 100, I didn't count them. Uh, it has equations, but it, it's still very easy to read. You can kind of skip over the, the equations. Uh, it's dense. It contains a lot of information that you can tell. Uh, I can tell that um, a lot of thought and time went into distilling and providing this, uh, you know, heavy sediment of, uh, you know, what economics or uh, the economics of migration is. 
And um, I, I really enjoyed reading this book very much. Um, it has all the elements it's supposed to have. And Two Body was not available in January because I could have assigned it as a, uh, as, a, as, a, as a required textbook in my class. I teach a GW, an immigration class, but definitely I will use it for next year. Um, of course, it should not be uh, a surprise that uh, this is such a great book. It is written by one uh, of the two fathers of uh, the field of labor economics and the economics of migration. George has been committed to the study of migration has uh, for more than 40 years. Um, he started as a child. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, has, has made enormous contributions to the field. Uh, he's the leading authority uh, in migration, has stimulated a tremendous amount of research all around the world, not just the US. He has been recognized by the field, uh, and in 2011, actually, he received the prestigious ICA prize in labor economics for his fundamental contributions to the economic analysis of migration. The book, the book's title already, uh, I think very well encapsulates what the book is about and what the book will teach you or, or show you. It, um, <clears throat> I think really tells you about the purpose, the goals, the message, and the theme of the book. What makes this book different is that it contains the state of the art in the field, and it is written in a very intriguing and vivid way without compromising the scientific rigor. It reads very much like a very nice story. <clears throat> As I was reading it, and I, you know, I'm pretending I'm the average reader, it often gives you the impression, um, it, you know, it evokes this, this um, visualization. Um, the reader can imagine being an immigrant or a native, an individual who faces the standard um, uh, hurdles or the standard decisions. Do I move or do I not move? Uh, if I go to a new country, how do, I, um, how do I manage in the new country? How do I face the new realities? <clears throat> how do I adjust? Um, as you read, again, although there are many equations, you can really feel for the characters. Uh, George has um, this, this wonderful way of, of writing using the symbols, the Greek symbols and the equations, but he starts like saying, you know, um, consider or imagine immigrant I in country J. And you, you can just see this person, uh, you know, and the decisions the, person's, the, the person um, is, is facing and, and what the person wants to do. Um, and he combines that with our models, the economic models, and, um, and, and then provides also empirical um, um, uh, data and, uh, and case studies and uh, research in, done in the literature to um, support all the evidence and the arguments. 
Uh, and, and again, I want to say that this book is not normative, like, like George said. It, it has nothing about whether it, something is good or bad. It's very factual, very scientific. Um, it's not political and it's not partisan. And, you know, his speech, I think, said it all as well, that uh, we as economists would just provide you the models, the facts, the assumptions, you know, how things should work. And then you can see um, what paths or what outcomes you get, uh, depending on what decision you make. Um, so it's, it's a very appealing book. Um, it, it combines clarity with uh, rigor. And um, I predict this book will be a classic, like your previous books. So the main theme of the book, uh, in my opinion, is, like uh, he said in, in the beginning of his speech, is about the distributional consequences that immigration or the moving of people <clears throat> creates. Um, so basically, just to put it in our economics jargon, it's all about the pie. Who's going to get the pie? How much of the pie you're going to get? And again, in our jargon, we say whenever something happens, whether it's an outside exogenous shock or, or a political uh, interference in the, in the free markets, you know, this always creates uh, gainers and losers. Okay, this is our jargon. Uh, so, and, and this very much you can see in the book and this exactly what is going on when people move um, uh, and, and we see that in our, um, in our models and, and, and in our uh, literature. And um, this, is, this theme is very effectively conveyed uh, throughout the book. Along with that theme, um, what is important um, I think, is that um, very rigorously we see that, and, and we assume and, and we see that immigrants are rational economic agents. Uh, some people say immigrants are opportunists, but in, in the good way. They're people who try to find the opportunity, seize the opportunity to better themselves and their families. And, you know, this is what we call in economics, they maximize utility, their utility, or they maximize their income under restrictions and whatever other hurdles they face. So the book <clears throat> is very nicely um, structured in um, nine chapters. Uh, and on top of that, you have introduction and conclusion. All these chapters are very, very nicely um, knit together. <laughs> Uh, they're independent, but yet they follow a very uh, nice logic continuity. Each chapter builds on the chapter before. There's usually a, a sort of preview or a summary at the end or the beginning of each chapter. And um, it, each chapter builds upon um, the previous one and augments our knowledge on the economics of migration. There is, I find that the transition from each chapter to another, it's uh, very smooth. So um, <clears throat> the book starts, um, I, I very much like the introduction of the book. And it's, um, you know, no beating around the bush. It's immediately, boldly, and bluntly 
um, it states the questions that will be eventually addressed and answered and argued about, okay? So these burning questions are, does a country need immigration, okay? Um, a country has to decide. It's, is, is a country better off having immigrants and what kind of immigrants? Is a country better off having low-skilled immigrants or high-skilled immigrants? Um, how do these immigrants assimilate economically in the labor market of the host country? In other words, do they work? Do they join the labor force? Uh, what kind of jobs do they have? How much money do they earn? Uh, how do their uh, offspring fare? Okay, the second generation or the third generation, what do they do? In some countries, the second and third generation are considered natives, like in the US, for example. In some other countries, they're not necessarily uh, natives uh, you know, by default, uh, especially in countries that also recognize bloodlines. So it's important to know what the, the generational progress or intergenerational progress of the immigrants, of the foreign-born is. And I'm very pleased to see an entire a separate chapter on that. That's not, not, not many books have done that, or, or the literature. And then uh, the, the book goes on to uh, discuss the, there's a chapter that gives you a wonderful review of the economics of uh, migration in the sense of what the labor markets, okay? What is the impact of, you know, when you have increase in the supply of workers, right? New workers come in. When the supply increases, then what would be the impact in the host economy, okay? The impact on uh, native workers, maybe the impact on previous immigrants, uh, previous cohorts of immigrants, uh, the impact on, on um, the firms, on the employers, and so on and so forth. And then he goes into summarizing extensively and presenting the state of the art, the latest literature, uh, findings uh, about the impact of immigration on uh, in the host country's um, employment, jobs, and and earnings or wages. And um, then it goes on also to cover the benefits of immigration. Um, uh, some some um, you got a sense of of some examples uh, during during the talk. So um, the book, as I said, really delivers what is set up uh, to do. And George says that uh, right from the beginning. In the introduction, he explicitly sets the goals and the purpose. And I really like that. I have to read that. It says, I would much prefer to read a shorter volume that focuses on what is essential to get a good understanding of the question. Okay, and this is why this is a smaller book. Um, there's so much literature, you cannot put everything together. And George very carefully chose um, these essential elements to give you a very good idea about economics, our models, how um, you know, things will change if something changes. Um, What I also very much like in all these chapters is that 
George presented, presents both views, if there are both views, presents the literature as, as it is and discusses, discusses it and compares it. And it's so refreshing that he has, uh, he's bold enough to tell us that we're still um, inadequate in our techniques in economics to be able to grasp everything and explain everything. Okay, there is still a lot of ignorance in our field. Like he said, maybe in 20 or 30 years, uh, we will be much better. Each chapter has theoretical models, as I said, uh, presents graphs, uh, has empirics, has case studies, uh, reviews the literature, uh, offers examples from other countries and not just the US, um, and also points out holes in the literature this is wonderful. As I was reading that book, I got at least five new ideas to write new papers. Um, it's, it's very nice. It's, it's thoroughly, thoroughly researched, and he knows exactly what exists and what doesn't and what the future is and where the, uh, the, the issues are. Um, Another nice thing that I liked uh, about this book uh, that he mentions in this book, which I haven't read before, is the difference between partial equilibrium and general equilibrium. And George alluded to that while he was talking. So partial equilibrium is something like, you know, you only look at um, one direct effect, like what's the effect of, you know, immigrants arriving tomorrow morning here, uh, on, on natives, okay? But general equilibrium will be to consider everything else that goes on when these people will move. Uh, that would be the impact uh, in, back in the home countries. That would be the cost of moving, like he said, the pollution from the airplanes they take to come over, the benefits that the airlines will, um, will receive from, from the, the moving of these people, uh, the taxes that these people will pay or, or they will not pay. So it's, it's very nice to look at this general equilibrium. It's not easy, and we're still working on that. But it's, it's wonderful to, to see that, you know, for, for, for George to mention that. Um, the last point I wanted to say is that um, in the conclusion, I also liked the conclusion of the book, and it was very refreshing to, uh, for you to read, and I have to read that, that passage to you again. Um, so... He says, instead of summarizing what has been done and what the book has done, uh, he says, the best way to conclude the journey of this book is to briefly summarize some of the key issues that remain to be resolved, rather than just provide a listing of what we already know. And then he goes on to point out the issues that are still burning and, and need some answers. So in conclusion, um, I will, uh, I, I totally and highly recommend that book. It's very, very good for students, for teachers, for all scholars of migration, for journalists, for the public. As I said, you can easily skip through the equations 
and you can still uh, grasp the concepts and understand how the models work and how, you know, what flaws we have in our science, uh, what the empirical studies show, and how they can be specific to each country. There are no universal patterns. <coughs> Excuse me. Something that holds true in one country may not hold true in another country. <coughs> and I guess that would be the very last thing. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Professor Constant. Thank you, uh, Professor Borjas, for your comments today. Uh, now is, we're going to begin the Q&A <coughs> portion of our program. Um, some reminders for that. Please wait to be called upon. Um, that was another technical problem. Um, please wait to be called on, please. Um, please wait for the microphone <coughs> so everybody in the room and online can hear you. Please announce your name and affiliation. And although this is a libertarian think tank, I will be highly regulating the Q&A session. So please ask a question very quickly. Um, now I'm gonna take moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Um, you have a lengthy discussion in your book about some of the differences that different scholars arrive at when it comes to the wage gap and the wage effects of immigration. Other prominent scholars uh, that I know you've gone back and forth with, uh, Professors Perry, Ottaviano, Card, Lewis, and others have sort of reached some different conclusions about the wage impact. I was wondering if you could discuss the differences between your work and their work and uh, where these differences arise from. Okay, uh, so uh, if you look, remember the slide is provided <laughs> with the structural model results. Is this on? Okay, so uh, the structural model results where you saw the, wage, the effect of the wage on high school dropouts and so on. Since that paper was first written in 2003, and I published that paper in 2003, so 11 years ago, there have been two subsequent developments in the literature that I discuss in the book, but I want to discuss now in a little detail, one of which turns out to be not important at all, and the other which may be very important, but we have no idea what to do about. Uh, so the one that turns out to be not important at all is the Ottaviano Perry kind of result. Oh, when Ottaviano and Perry first wrote their paper, their very first draft of the paper in 2006, they claimed that they had evidence that high school dropouts who are 30 years old, say, who are foreign-born, are different from high school dropouts who are 30 years old who are native-born. And these differences could create complementarities. In other words, a 30-year-old native-born high school dropout could actually learn something from a 30-year-old foreign-born high school dropout. Uh, there were data problems with that paper, and there's been a long literature on this, and in the final version that was actually published by Ottaviano and Perry in 2012, those uh, complementarities are much, much weaker. And in fact, numerically, even though they're sort of significant, numerically speaking, they're not operationally significant. In the meantime, however, David Card came up with a different twist on the data, which is to say, Maybe we shouldn't be looking at 30-year-old high school dropouts who are native-born and who are uh, foreign-born in terms of complementarities. Maybe we have to worry about what the definition of the school groups are. If you recall that slide, I had five school groups, high school dropouts, high school graduates, some college, college graduates, and post-college. The high school groups don't really matter in the debate in this context, so I'll leave them out of this. 
The two groups that really matter in this debate are the high school dropout and the high school graduates. In the slide I showed you, I treated those groups as being different kinds <coughs> of people. And in the book, I then extend that to allow for the David Carr kind of argument, which is that maybe those two groups are not different kinds of people. Maybe, in fact, now in the U.S. today, high school dropouts and high school graduates are interchangeable, or what an economist would call perfect substitutes. Now, that seems as far removed from immigration in terms of what do people care about, as you can imagine. Nevertheless, it's actually a very important point in the context of immigration. And the reason is this. Let me give you numbers. Just, I'm making up an example off the top of my head, okay? But, so the numbers aren't quite right, but I want to show you the basic point. Suppose there are 10 million uh, foreign-born high school dropouts, and they land overnight in a helicopter. And there are 10 million native-born high school dropouts as well. So basically, the, the 10 million foreign-born high school dropouts came in, and they doubled the size of the low-skill workforce. That's a pretty big supply shock. And that would you, yeah, you'd expect to have a pretty big impact. But if the low-skilled native workforce is not just composed of high school dropouts, but of high school dropouts plus high school graduates, then that 10 million people who came in overnight don't really mean all that much in the scheme of things. Because suppose that in addition to the 10 million high school dropouts who are native-born, native there are 50 million natives who are high school graduates. Well, 10 million addition to 60 million is much less than 10 million adding to 10 million. So in terms of a percentage supply shock, combining the two school groups at the bottom makes immigration much less relevant. After all, very few immigrants are high school graduates. Immigrants are usually very, very, very low skill high school dropouts or very, very high skill. So it really matters how you define the low skill workforce. And in the book, I go through the literature developed on this since David Card proposed this. And the fact of the matter is that it really depends on how you, what you assume. You can look at different papers and come up with completely different answers, even within the same paper, actually, <laughs> as to whether high school dropouts and high school graduates are perfect substitutes or not. And that's where the debate stands today. Now, in the book, I hope to be very fair and present the whole picture and provide all the numbers. And if you read the chapter, you can pick on your, your own number. <laughs> and indeed, you are very fair in that chapter. So I'm glad you're able to explain that. So now some questions uh, from the audience. Um, uh, this gentleman there in the blue jacket. Just one moment, please. Thank you, Dr. Borja. I really enjoyed your, I'm Darren Na, I'm an intern here at the Cato Institute. Could you a little I, louder? I'm Darren Na, I'm an intern here at the Cato Institute, and I really enjoyed what you had to say on immigration. Um, I would like you to speak more on maybe intergenerational um, migration, so maybe, and also something to do with cultural assimilation. So in countries like the United States, where second-generation immigrants tend to do probably better off and tend to assimilate and become American just as any other native-born citizens, as compared to maybe countries like Japan where there might be a difference between second-born or third-born generation immigrants and how they tend to do better in countries like the United States. Okay. Thank you. Okay, I didn't talk about this at all in the talk today, but the, the last chapter of the book actually is a chapter on what happens to the second generation. 
And one of the things that, okay, we obviously, let me, let me put it in context, we obviously have no clue of what will happen to the second generation of people arriving today because we haven't seen them yet. What we can do is provide a historical context of what happened to the second generation of people who arrived, say, in 1900 and to the third generation of people who arrived in 1900, right? So we can track in the past and presume that somehow this pattern holds up in the future. What you tend to find in the past is that about half this, there is assimilation, no doubt about it. Half the gap between groups vanishes in a generation. So if you want to think about it this way, the half-life of the immigrant disadvantage is basically one generation. So after two or three generations, basically immigrants in the, 19, in the 20th century became like natives. Uh, whether that is true or not in the future is, in my mind, debatable. And this actually goes to a point that Amelie sort of made that I raised in the book, which is the following. Uh, I believe, and I hate to have concluded this in my, in my work, but I really do believe this now, that it is not correct to take uh, results from a particular experiment and apply them to other immigration flows. And the reason is that the, whatever happened in a particular context happened in that context. Let me give you the, the idea of what I mean in terms of the example you raise. Take, go back to 1915. Many immigrants were coming in, right? Uh, in 1915, the typical immigrant who came in became part of the manufacturing workforce. Something like 70 to 80% of the Ford Motor Company in World War I was foreign-born. I mean, immigrants built the manufacturing sector in the U.S. And that's actually important. And the reason it's important is because these immigrants went into a sector that became heavily unionized very quickly, that paid very, very high wages, where the jobs were transmitted within the family generation to generation. And that entree really provided an incredible entry into the middle class for the immigrants to arrive then. That's a particular institutional an economic structure that did that. I don't know if that's replicable today. Another great example, again, to show you how it's very hard to take these historical lessons and apply them today, is that back in 1915, there were something, I forget the exact number again, but there were hundreds of German language newspapers in the US. By 1920, over half of them had disappeared. And that's because of World War I. Many states made it illegal to speak German in public. A way to think about that is an assimilation policy. It's an assimilation policy. And again, whether that's replicable today or not is far from clear. So in the past, yes, there's been this pattern of the wage gap narrowing by basically half of it disappearing from one generation to the other. But I don't think we can really trust that those results apply in the future in this country or apply in any other country. In fact, in, other, in many other countries, there's a big problem with this issue. You know, each, each case is specific. Next question. Um, uh, yes, that gentleman right there in the uh, glasses. Yeah. Mario Villarreal from the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. Uh, Professor Borges, you did a wonderful job about exploring uh, how immigration impacts exchange of wages for skills, the impact of relative prices of uh, different types of laborers, and so on. 
Could you tell us a little bit about what do you think that economic analysis and empirical evidence tell us about how immigration impacts innovation and entrepreneurship? Okay, uh, that's the high skill literature was talking about. Uh, there are now, uh, there's actually a very nice paper that is gonna be published later this year by um, Fabian Waldinger. I hope to get all the co-authors properly. Fabian Waldinger, uh, <coughs> and two other, two young women at Stanford, two young faculty members at Stanford, and Petra and Alexandra, I forget the last name, but anyway. Uh, they actually have a very nice study regarding this issue, which I think is the most credible study. And what they did is actually look at the example, one of the examples I mentioned in the talk, which is what happened to innovation in the US after the arrival of the German Jewish scientists who were dismissed from university in 1932. And they find that innovation actually increased dramatically. And you know, it's a very believable result, the analysis is well done. Let me say two things about it. One thing I want to say about it is that even in that paper, they have a remarkable finding. Innovation increased dramatically, not because the pre-existing scientists in the US became more productive. They didn't. It's because the presence of these Jewish luminaries attracted people into these fields. And that's where the new innovation came in. So that's actually a very interesting way of thinking about the impact of high school immigration. The second interesting thing about this is that all, the, and this is, by, this is by far the best done study in that, in that genre, right? Uh, a very interesting insight from this is that you're looking at the entry of people at the level of Einstein and von Neumann. It is far from clear that the externalities and the spillover effects created by the presence of those people applies to high school immigration as we define it today. So again, this is a case in which the context matters a lot. And the third thing I wanna, I wanna add one more thing about the context, which is important. When the physicists and the chemists and the uh, mathematicians that came in World War II arrived in the US, none of those fields was actually all that important in the US. Germany was the center of the world in academic endeavor in those fields. And that's not quite true today either. So again, in the historical context, it's really the same question in a way. There's evidence that it, that it was important back then. I think the context of what we mean by high school immigration today is so different that really is very hard to, to connect the two. And we have time for uh, one more question here. Uh, I'll this uh, right here in the second row. Thank you. I'm uh, Peggy Orchowski. I'm the congressional correspondent for the Hispanic Outlook on Higher Education. I just did a study, an investigative study on the challenge, let's put it, of uh, for Hispanic engineers. There's a big surge of Hispanic kids studying engineering, but getting into grad school because of um, competition, let's put it, from foreign students who usually pay three to four times more tuition than with the native-born Hispanic kids. Um, I noticed in your chart, you had that post-grad students are almost, have almost as much a wage uh, gap um, as the high school dropout. And um, I'm wondering if that's, uh, if there is a factor here 
of, uh, of the foreign student, particularly uh, from India and China. Okay, I didn't quite... Crowding out. What? The huge the question is that there is there the potentially that, a crowding that foreign out. students are now dominating crowding um, out of the foreign, graduate. Yeah, uh, I'm talking about STEM right. fields, mainly I, engineering. Uh, I actually have one paper on this published, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, where I do found some crowding on effects. Now, the reason that you get crowding on effects more likely than not in the, in, the, in the academic sector, and that's true whether it's in foreign students or in hiring in academics, is that the academic sector is incredibly peculiar. I've worked my entire life in it, and I still can't believe how peculiar the place is, okay? And, uh, you know, one thing that you see in, academic, in the academic sector is that, you know, slots are very inelastic. You know, Harvard will, the, the entering class at a major university is X number of students, and that's true whether they are, you know, whether there's a baby boom or not. It doesn't be X number of students. Um, and, and that is what basically accounts for the crowding out. I actually have a great story that relates also to the previous question regarding crowding out. Uh, and it has to do with Soviet mathematicians. Uh, when the Soviet mathematicians came uh, from the USSR after the collapse of the USSR in 1992, 93, 94, many were world-class mathematicians. The chairman of the math department at Harvard was in contact with two such Soviet mathematicians. And these Soviet mathematicians uh, basically told them, you know, give us an offer, we're there tomorrow. And these were really like world-class mathematicians, potential, maybe even potential Fields Medal winners for all I know, right? But really world-class, very smart people. The chair of the math department at Harvard went to the dean of, of the college at Harvard and said, look, we have two people waiting for job offers from us that if we could get, you know, I really like, who do path-breaking work here. The dean, by the way, was an economist, so he should know better. Uh, but nevertheless, and it's a very famous person, so I will not mention the name. But look, and, look in the web and see who was an economist at Harvard, was, chair of the, was the dean of the college, and won Nobel Prize eventually, as a matter of fact. And uh, you put all those things together, and the dean's answer was no. You know, slots are slots. And even in the academic sector, these things don't adjust very quickly, which is why when, when these kinds of innovations are driven through the academic sector, they may not show up that much as they would show up if they were driven through the competitive sector. Do you have any comments on that? Um, <clears throat> uh, I, uh, well, I, I just wanted to um, touch up on the general equilibrium a little bit related to innovation and to, um, you know, like you said, when um, immigrants come. Uh, the example I have, and I don't know if you can quantify and in what way, but um, after the Second War, uh, both um, uh, Americans and Russians run to Berlin to get the heads, uh, the brainy Germans. And um, the Americans... Uh, got uh, Werner, Vo Werner von Braun, if you've heard of him, and his team. Uh, and they brought him to the US, and they put him in a very small, almost non-existent town in the South called Huntsville, Alabama. And he built the Apollo program. He put uh, the Americans on the moon. This, this is a big city now. Because of Werner von Braun, because he also wanted a PhD, he, uh, he managed to get a campus to get the University of Alabama in Huntsville, which did not exist before. Because of the Germans 
Uh, they started an opera, they started a symphony, they started uh, so many things. Uh, how can you quantify all that? And how do you measure in a general equilibrium? I don't know. Uh, but definitely, I want to say, like George says in, in the book, we need to keep an open mind and we need to be cognizant of our deficiencies as scientists to measure some things, but we hope for the best in the future. Great, well, thank you very much to both of our presenters. Let's give them a round of applause.